Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to Puto Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by... Kerry Clack, columnist, editorial board. And we have a special guest today. Um, just a couple of days ago on Saturday, she had her official uh, campaign kickoff. She's running for a second term representing the, the West Side in District 5. Councilwoman Terry Castillo, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you all for having me. I'm very excited to be here with you all. Um, one one issue that I, that I has, is, is a big one now, and particularly because of what happened with Tyree Nichols in, in Memphis, where you had five police officers uh, kill a 29-year-old African-American man. They were members of the Scorpion unit in, in Memphis. You recently expressed some concerns about a new uh, policing strategy in San Antonio to hotspot policing, whereas I understand that you have, you're going to have police officers in, uh, kind of rotating into uh, uh, over like 28 hotspots in the city. Um, and to many of us, it looks like there are similarities, if not in the implementation, at least in the, in the strategy to what was happening with the, the Scorpion unit in Memphis. You've expressed some concerns about it. What what concerns you about this? Yeah, there's a number of things. I believe my constituents and many working families throughout San Antonio are tired of being studied and being told that this is where pockets of poverty are. Mm. Um, and what we know is that where many of these pockets of poverty are, there are high concentrations of violent crime, right? And that's what the, the UTSA professors have argued mm -hmm. uh, is that violent crime is concentrated within specific areas. And I believe that if we present a redlining map, a map with housing demolitions, a map with childhood asthma, we're going to see many similarities of where these areas are concentrated. And they're primarily low-income areas. Um, an issue that I took with the study is that it does not explicitly state where the data is from. Uh, during the B session, we learned that it is SAPD's data set. But when reading the, the study, it doesn't explicitly say where the data is being used. Uh, in, in addition to that, uh, it presents um, strategies that we've seen in the 80s that we've seen implemented in many cities throughout the United States have been, that have been very harmful to communities of color, right? Um, for example, when we look at place-based policing, uh, we know that led to the loss of Breonna Taylor, right? Um, there's concerns about the Scorpion unit and how um, that was a targeted effort and it resulted in the death of Tyree Nichols. Uh, at the same time, we do have examples here in San Antonio. Um, while I did not bring up what went off in Memphis during the B session, I did bring up a very concern and example that uh, we had recently in District 5. We had a resident who was stopped because he was suspected of being a suspect. Uh, he was pulled over for riding his bicycle on the wrong side of the street. And uh, it initiated into something where he ended up losing his life. And he was not the individual that SAPD was looking for. Uh, and that's one example, and that's one concern, but that's an example. Uh, and, and again, right, um, the individual who lost his life may have had a warrant, but that doesn't mean riding your bicycle on the wrong side of the street should end in death. It doesn't mean that having a warrant should end in death. So there are many concerns um, to have, many conversations to have as well, right? 
I am a, a historian and we're trained to look at historiographies, case studies, citations and sources. Looking at the sources that were referenced in the study were primarily grounded in broken windows theory, uh, which is very alarming. And when we look at that, we want to be sure that we're not replicating uh, those negative uh, impacts that are harmful to communities of color. And what I mean by that is uh, a school to prison pipeline, right? A foster care to prison pipeline. And how are we investing in people and fostering communities of care and treatment and not trauma to ensure that we can create uh, healthy neighborhoods, right? Where we're really tackling um, the factors of what contributes to crime, right, at the root, rather than uh, putting those solutions at the back end. Because the, the study also suggests in the very last phase uh, of doing case management with formerly incarcerated individuals, which is a great solution, right, suggestion. But what if we provided uh, that social service and safety net and resources at the front end, starting with our youth, right? We'd have so many less folks going into uh, the, 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 mm-hmm. the system. Yeah, I mean, I think so much of what we I, public policy. I'm sure this frustrates you too. Is seems so reactive. It's always it's so we're we're, we're dealing with something. Something has happened. We're going to react to it rather than what are what's what's causing uh, what's causing these issues. Yeah, and right, the the study does cite a UPenn study uh, where their school of medicine found that investing in homeowner rehab programs drastically reduces crime in low income areas. It, the study from UPenn found that investing in vacant lots drastically reduces crime and increases the sense of safety in a neighborhood, and particularly low-income neighborhoods. And a piece of the frustration is that these are solutions that have been brought forth. Uh, my first uh, budget session, City Council, I cited that study. Um, this past budget, I cited that study, and now we have uh, a UTSA study citing the same study, and, and now we're going to consider it. Um, and, and again, right, just making sure that uh, we're looking at the vast wealth of literature that exists on solutions on addressing crime and not just going with one study, right? Um, especially if it's going to influence policy. My hope and expectation would be that there's a peer review process, right, where uh, the, the authors get uh, to get receive some input from other scholars on where the gaps are, what's missing, and then we go from there. Um, so I'm a bit hesitant using one study um, that's not peer reviewed, that I have concerns with, with the sources, right, being primarily based in broken windows theory, and also recognizing that my constituents want material solutions now, right? And we know how to get there. Um, and it's just frustrating that there's this dragged out timeline uh, to, to potentially meet the needs of community when, again, we, we know what those solutions are uh, and just concerns around the study. And I think everyone should have not necessarily concerns, but questions, right? We shouldn't just take uh, any study as is. And this is just one example where we have a study where there's questions worth asking. That was one of the things that, that did stand out, that, that the third step, which wouldn't be implemented for more more than a year, is the one that deals with you know, um, looking at high offenders and getting them social services and, and GED. Yet, as you said, that seems, you know, these are areas where they didn't become this way last year three years ago, five years, years ago. They've been that, this way for decades. So we already know that, that those services, where they should, what they should be doing. Mm-hmm. It had, has anyone given you a good explanation about why it seems to be reversed? Those were questions that we asked during the B session, and I wasn't mm-hmm. satisfied with the answers that I received um, because there were um, 
the presentation was one thing, but reading the studies another, right? Mm-hmm. And it leaves a lot open to the imagination. And I had questions that I directed towards the chief, but the the, the professor answered. But I wanted to know what PD's role, right? And this is a UTSA study, correct? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and just there's more questions than answers. Uh, I understand that you know every city is different. Uh, there's different morale and practices with different. Uh, police departments throughout the nation. Uh, but these are fair questions to ask and fair concerns to have. Along the same lines on that, on the same issue of policing, uh, there's a, a group uh, called the Justice Charter Coalition, which has uh, gotten a lot of uh, petition signatures. And I, I guess we're still in the process of finding out if they're going to uh, get this uh, uh, proposed charter amendment on the ballot, but it looks really promising for them. And th- this proposition would basically codify through the, the city charter, uh, eliminating no-knock warrants for, pol- for police, no chokeholds. It would decriminalize uh, abortion and, and small amounts of marijuana. What are, what are your thoughts on, uh, on this proposal? Yeah, no doubt, right? Um, I am supportive of the spirit of the Justice Charter uh, Initiative. I know, we know, right, that four out of five folks are supportive of decriminalizing marijuana. We know that women should not be uh, criminalized for accessing health care. Uh, and with no-knock warrants and chokeholds, those are already practices of PD, right? So it's just codifying mm-hmm. uh, what's already practiced. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I know right now the city clerk's currently vetting those signatures to see if they qualify to get on the ballot. I also believe that language, right, is going to to be a factor, right? What's that ballot language going to look like? Um, um, to, to, the, to the masses, right? Like, is it going to be something that folks are going to be able to digest? Is it going to be palatable uh, is another piece. But I think, you know, for the time we're in, uh, we know that we are a heavy, like, state preemption is very heavy in Texas in particular. Yeah, yeah. But I believe that we need to signal to to women, uh, to, 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 the, to the nation, really, right, that in the state of Texas, we do stand with women uh, and they should not be criminalized for accessing health care. Yeah, you've had a city attorney, Andy Scovia, saying that he has questions about at least a couple of the things, I think, related to, to both marijuana and abortion because of the state laws that he thinks would, would preempt uh, any any changes in the, in the charter along those lines. I mean, I guess we'd probably have a pretty good chance of maybe a legal battle if if this would pass. Is that is that your sentiment? So other cities that have passed similar initiatives mm-hmm. have not been sued by mm-hmm. the state, right? So there's different models uh, where similar justice charters have been passed in Austin, San Marcos, and I believe recently in Basel, but mm-hmm. uh, don't call me on that one, yeah. um, that have passed and they have not been sued by the state. Um, but absolutely, right, we know many things throughout history have been illegal uh, or legal, and uh, we shouldn't just uh, be satisfied with injustice of women being criminalized for accessing health care. We shouldn't uh, be comfortable with injustice of folks being um, criminalized for one accident and having a joint, right? That mm-hmm. could lead to uh, access to education, right? You no longer qualify for FAFSA. That leads yeah. to not having access to quality housing because sometimes it's a mark on your record and it's um, difficult to find housing and it perpetuates a whole snowball effect of issues that are harmful to society, right? Because you have more individuals who can't access these very important social needs, mm-hmm. uh, when in reality, we should be um, helping folks recover and integrate back into to being productive members of society. And oftentimes what we found is, you know, when you're released from um, prison or jail, you come out less of a citizen and that you don't have access to that educational opportunity, that you don't have access to that quality housing, that you don't have access to that upward mobility mm-hmm. of finding a, a quality, well-paying job. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot 
uh, to dig into and to digest. Uh, but absolutely, I think this is a, a step in the right direction. What's your sense of how, just your instinct of how voters uh, will go for that? I mean, because obviously District 5, different from you know, District 10. So, and with that, it's such a wide range of issues there, you know, from specific police issues to abortion and decriminalization of marijuana. What's your sense of how the city will respond at the ballot? Yeah, it's a wide range of things, right? I definitely believe the conversation that we're having around policing is definitely at the top of uh, many residents throughout San Antonio and ensuring that there's accountability. And whether you're on one side or the other, I believe that we all agree that um, there are things that are just unjust and inhumane and what happened in Memphis is one example. Um, so I do believe there is a collective belief that uh, there needs to be accountability, right? There's there's uh, bad cops, bad teachers, bad politicians, right? Um, and we all believe that everyone should be held accountable. And I think uh, the expectation of my constituents, which I represent uh, some of the city's highest concentration of formerly incarcerated individuals, um, their concern and priority is uh, accountability and uh, working towards justice and not being further criminalized. Uh, and I think this uh, is a step in continuing the conversation around uh, more policy and more investment that needs to go into our communities. You recently were able to get the city council to approve something that's a, a, a proposal that you had championed, which was getting a stretch of Savios Road uh, Street uh, renamed in honor of Emma Tenayuka, the, the civil rights and, and uh, uh, activist and champion of the, of the 1930s and 1940s. And it was the timing was really interesting, too, because this was like, I think, just a few days before the 85th anniversary of the beginning of the Pecan Shellers uh, strike, which is, is legendary here in San Antonio, which she was, she played a, a, a key role in, in organizing that. Can you talk a little bit about what she means to you and why this was really important to you? Yeah, that's uh, a number of things, right? We're really excited that we were able to partner with um, the uh, with Makri. Uh, this was one of uh, our mayor's first council consideration requests, and we're very proud that we were able to collaborate with him on this effort, mm -hmm. as well as Congressman Joaquin Castro, mm -hmm. who has prioritized ensuring that we're recognizing and honoring that history of the Mexican-American civil rights uh, movement here in San Antonio, and that District 5 in particular is the cradle of Mexican-American civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. uh, and what that means to me is highlighting that history, because I, 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 again, I'm a trained historian, right? So I, I believe um, when you have a Folks tend to say history repeats itself, and I argue it, it doesn't. When you ground yourself in history, uh, you recognize that there's always been resistance and community mm -hmm. organizing for a better and a just world. And I believe that uh, the labor movement around the pecan Scheller strike is one example. Mm -hmm. uh, again, right, you had Mexican-American women and kids who organized um, for better wages and a quality workplace. And at the time, right, uh, Emma and her colleagues were viewed as radical. Um, they just weren't um, someone worth listening to, right? They, she, Emma had crazy ideas, right? And she doesn't know what she's talking well, pretty about. Pretty much, I, 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 along those lines, I was going back and reading some old newspaper articles from that period. Uh -huh. And it's pretty much impossible to find any reference to her where she, the word communist yeah. is not in yeah. the same yeah. sentence. Yeah. Every, yeah. It's constant. Yeah. 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 And then you see the same thing, right? When you think about MLK. And, and his history and Malcolm mm -hmm. X and their history, sure. right? There's a, an erasure of that key piece of, of their ideals and their vision um, when we present it today. But what's important about uh, the Emma Tanika way is that we know 
the state is um, challenging critical race theory, is challenging culturally relevant pedagogy. And I believe that as a city, we have a responsibility to help fill that gap. And what that looks like is investing in public art to tell those stories Mm -hmm. of movements and history uh, and and how we got here today. Because we know because of the the pecan sheller strike, um, we saw an increase in wages. We saw um, access to weekends being off, right? There is so much that came out of that resistance. And always recognizing that uh, many of the rights that we celebrate today People organized for them. They weren't uh, just given to us. And one day city council or the state government said, oh, like, let's honor this history. Let's Mm -hmm. give people weekends off. Like, no, people fought for that and organized. And there was so much resistance to access those basic rights. You came to council uh, as a housing advocate. And um, and displacement has been a big issue for you. A little more than a year ago, the the city passed the strategic housing implementation plan. There's money in the, the house, there's a housing bond, I think for the first time and, and, and funds there for the production and rehabilitation of, of housing in, in San Antonio. We're, we're early in that process. I mean, this is this uh, strategic housing implementation plan is a 10 year uh, project, but how do you think we're doing at that point? And what are you, particularly in district five, when you look at displacement, um, what are your big concerns right now? Yeah, When we talk about the, the first phase of the 2022 bond, we're extremely proud of the work of our housing bond appointees uh, who served and helped shape those parameters of where those bond dollars were going to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, we had Kayla Miranda as one of our uh, bond appointees for the housing bucket. She's a public housing tenant and her, alongside some of her other uh, bond colleagues, were able to support public housing as one of the parameters mm-hmm. to potentially receive funding for um, receive bond dollars. And what we've seen with the first phase is that Opportunity Home received funding for um, the Alizana Apache Courts, and it's for 100% public housing units. So 88 units are 100% public housing. And that's a, a huge win for the city of San Antonio, because we know once we lose that public housing stock, it doesn't come back. Yeah. Um, and we are one of the few municipalities to invest with our housing authority for 100 uh, percent of public housing. Other cities have done public-private partnerships, but it produces uh, mixed-income housing. So mm. what we're doing here with this first phase is very uh, unique, but also recognizing that, uh, again, communities came out and organized for those parameters, right? Um, they were at the committee level um, the the housing chair voted against many of those deep affordability uh, parameters. So uh, again, right, just recognizing that uh, it, it took debate mm-hmm. uh, and communities coming out to secure these parameters that are helping us reach those housing goals. We have plenty more work ahead, but in regards to District 5, the ship and housing, um, we're very pleased with the um, projects that are being funded in our district. Uh, they are um, going to provide a deep affordability, and we're just extremely proud of the bond committee members and the the, the housing staff with the city of San Antonio who uh, are, are took the parameters that the bond created, and they're out there identifying projects um, to ensure that we're producing that deep affordability. Could you explain to people who might not know, just talking about Alizana Apache, the whole something as basic as air conditioning? Mm-hmm. That just that in, in South Texas and the, the issue that's been. Yeah. So the city of San Antonio is very unique in that we have a high concentration of public housing, uh, primarily in District 5 and District 1. And it 
uh, at the time was being uh, at risk of demolition and being replaced with mixed income housing with zero plan of where those current public housing tenants mm-hmm. were going to be relocated to. Uh, and I organized alongside tenants and the historic West Side to, one, challenge the predatory eviction uh, processes that were going on, right? What we saw at the time was tenants receiving bogus fines and fees that were adding up. Uh, and eventually they're paying the fees and they didn't have enough for the rent or they're paying the rent and it was going towards the fees and it was leading towards uh, mm. the eviction of our public housing tenants. Again, no plan of where they're going to go. Um, but we organized, we changed the parameters for the, the lease. Um, but then we saw a change in strategy of how tenants were being evicted. Um, but ultimately, this all um, erupted into um, the resignation of David Nisi Vocha of the San Antonio Housing Authority and then the appointment of Ed Inihosa. Uh, and uh, it's been a day and night uh, shift in vision and values uh, in ensuring that we put tenants first, put uh, the residents of San Antonio first and ensuring that we keep families housed. So uh, I, I, that's a, a long, uh, a short version of a very long history. But um, the fact that, uh, again, this was everyday people coming out and, and making this happen. And here we are, you know, 88 units of public housing through the housing bond uh, in partnership. Uh, but uh, it's just uh, amazing. But at the same time, recognizing that there was uh, so much opposition at the time. A couple of weeks ago, the city council voted to authorize use of eminent domain on uh, the owner of a downtown business, uh, uh, Moses uh, Rose's hideout. Um, to make way for an Alamo visitor center and museum, which is uh, part of the, the 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 huge Alamo Plaza project, which is which is uh, happening, and there were two council members who voted against it. Uh, the use of eminent domain it was yourself and Jayla McKee Rodriguez. And uh, if you could talk a little bit, I know on from the dais you were talking about at least giving this process of negotiation a little more time because it, it, as, as as far as we understand there's a huge gap between what the Alamo Trust has been offering and what the the owner of the bar has has wanted uh, to, to sell to uh, the property um, and you were talking about maybe allowing more time um, before taking this big step uh, so what what uh, when you made the decision to vote against this what were you yeah, your yeah. thoughts? Yeah, a couple of things, right? The use of eminent domain is a very delicate issue. I understand uh, the need for eminent domain when it comes to drainage projects, uh, pedestrian mobility, things mm-hmm. are, that are going to overall improve the quality of life for the residents of San Antonio. And what we had here was a property owner who um, were plans were made with his property without his consent, right? And we're talking about private property here. And uh, one, I had a concern that, you know, uh, you had an entity making plans with property that did not belong to them, right? Because we've seen this pattern with slum clearance uh, and with Hemisphere and so on and so forth. There are mm. so many examples of uh, folks losing their property uh, because people made plans for them. Uh, so I had issue with that. Uh, I also took issue with the fact that, um, you know, <laughs> you had uh, so many individuals talking about how this was going to bring billions of dollars uh, in economic investment. And when you look at the way, the tools of how folks wealth build, mm-hmm. it's through property ownership. And this individual who has this very um, enticing real estate uh, no longer has that opportunity to pass that generational wealth onto the next uh, family to, 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 yeah. to wealth build, right? And uh, I believe that it should be the, a property's owner's choice, right, to, to sell in, in this instance, right? Uh, again, right, if it's drainage, pedestrian mobility, that's a whole different thing. But when you have another 
uh, entity creating plans with private property, I, I take concern. Yeah. You, oh. mm-hmm. Yes. So many times eminent domain is associated with, you know, opposition with, with conservatives. So do you think that there are people who are, are, are surprised that, that one of the, the more liberal members of the uh, council was out here speaking and defending property rights? I'm not too sure about that, right? But but when I ground my uh, when we ground ourselves in history and we look at the role of of uh, manifest destiny, westward expansion, mm-hmm. um, you know, land grabs, there's just such a history in how uh, it's been used. And again, right, just for the benefit of profit and capital, uh, and not necessarily the greater good of of, of an ecosystem. And uh, that's just. Uh, what I'm grounded in, mm-hmm. and uh, that's why I ultimately uh, oppose the, the initiation of eminent domain. Even, even without eminent domain, I guess there's, it's hard to imagine any uh, way this this story could play out. Where I mean, he's he 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 wouldn't end up selling it because this, it looks like this project is going to happen. And mm-hmm. and I think he said he's he's yeah. he wants to sell it. It's really about the you know what the what the price is going to be. I mean, th- as far as you can tell, I mean, there's there's this is going to happen. One way or another, I, I believe uh, since it's been initiated, right? Typically, that's how eminent domain operates. Is it, it's um, a lever you pull to put pressure to yeah. ultimately uh, right. a- access the the real estate. Yeah, um, CPS Energy recently announced uh, uh, that they are going to shutter the uh, Spruce uh, One uh, plant, the coal fired plant, and they're going to convert the um, the Spruce Two plant to natural gas, I think no later than, than 2028. Um, this is a lot of people see that this certainly is a positive step as far as uh, um, given how, you know, just uh, the environmental damage that, that the coal fired plants were causing. Uh, at the same time, there are some people who maybe are not, you feel like this isn't enough or that natural gas maybe isn't uh, the way they'd want to go. Um, what, what was your reaction to that announcement? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, when uh, our appointee briefed us on the different uh, buckets and different proposals, uh, we had a lot of conversation around what was the the dynamic at the committee, right? Where were folks landing? And ultimately, um, the parameters that were voted on was where the consensus was at, right? And we know that's how it works. Mm -hmm. Um, But ultimately, recognizing that while we're having these larger conversations around shutting the spruce coal plant, right, there are many micro things that we can be doing at the same time. Uh, and what that looks like is partnering with our independent school districts that are currently looking at uh, demolishing their old schools mm. and looking at how we can leverage federal grants to deconstruct that building. Um, it reduces our carbon emission footprint. It mm. reduces the amount of dust that goes out into the neighboring communities that our kids are inhaling, uh, potentials for like asbestos and any are of that. Are there some in District 5? That, uh, that's y- yes, there's there's a couple, um, but there's opportunity to to tackle those things at the micro level, right? Uh, so while we're having these conversations about shutting spruce, right, what can we be doing down here um, at the local level with our schools, with uh, different nonprofit organizations to to make sure that we're moving, reducing our carbon emission footprint, right? Uh, and that's uh, one area that we're exploring. Uh, and it's just, it, it makes sense, right? Uh, it, there's uh, so many irons in the fire. Uh, but that's what we're navigating right now. And actually, the way you just answered that, taking it from spruce to the things that that folks can can do closer to home, how how does your uh, experience as an organizer affect you being on the council? Affect your approach towards policy that may may be different from other members? Yes, it, it's. Um there's this very great uh, COPS Metro organizer, Linda Ortega, right? And I believe it's a COPS Metro slogan. I'm not too sure. Um, but she always says, uh, 
you know, well, essentially right, work issue by issue. Uh, oftentimes folks want to work. I'm on the right, you're on the left or, you know, mm-hmm. go get into that bickering. And to us, it's like if we can identify where we have a common goal, let's work towards that. Right. And one uh, thing that we're very proud of is that we were able to work with Congressman Tony Gonzalez. Uh, we let him know what our priorities were as a district. And uh, we talked about housing and public housing. And mm-hmm. he reached out saying, hey, what are some public housing uh places that we can visit. And we set it up. We both toured uh, the Castellano homes and the Alazana Pache courts. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we both share the values that uh, housing serves as a great tool for upward mobility and acquiring that American dream of property ownership, right? It's a a tool and a segue um, to upward mobility. And through that conversation, we were able to secure $2 million that uh, Congressman Tony Gonzalez helped secure. Mm. Um, so again, right, issue by issue, and um, it's just how you get things done. It's really interesting that you talk about the issue by issue thing, because I was thinking about when you and, and Jayla McKee Rodriguez, two young progressives were elected to city council two years ago. You know, there was some talk. I mean, I think there was there, this this popped up in, in articles that were written at the time among some people in the business community or elsewhere saying, that they questioned whether you all would be able to, to work well with your council colleagues because you might be so so dogmatic on the issues. But I've, I've, I mean, my sense, and you, you can tell us more about it, is that you have worked, been able to get along well with your council colleagues. And there have been instances, uh, talking about issue by issue, where, for instance, we were dealing with the bond program and you pushed for more streets and, and drainage funding and you were uh, allied in that instance with Clayton Perry, who's probably the most conservative member of the council, because he also, he kind of comes from the perspective of, you know, we should take care of the basics. And in that case, you're looking at district five and the the great needs that you have. And you're thinking, yeah, on this issue, I'm in agreement with you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. And then when we look at where that's in regards to the linear greenway funding, those are great expressions article about it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I, um, but point being, right, is when we looked at the breakdown of where that $110 million were going for the linear greenway trail, um, the majority was outside of District 5, right? And the argument that was uh, uh, that was trying to be made was that this is more for a district, this is equitable, like shut up and take it. Um, but when you look at the numbers, absolutely not. That was uh, 100% inequitable. Um, it did little to address the drainage concerns within my district who received zero drainage dollars in 2017. But through that debate and through that negotiation process, we secured over $25.6 million for drainage, right? Um, but also looking at the, the the material needs for District 5 and basic infrastructure, mm-hmm. many of my constituents do not have sidewalks, or if they do, it's uh, in disrepair. Uh, we have many failed streets, and these are the quality of life things to ensure that my constituents, where there's uh, they're being being impacted by many social determinants of health, um, having a safe sidewalk to walk on can mean getting that blood circulating, so that way, mm-hmm. uh, if they have diabetes, right, they don't have to worry about uh, specific issues. Just making sure that they have basic access to basic things can mean so much to improving the quality of life, uh, and that's been a priority. Um, at the time, um, you know, it, the, the bond at the time uh, didn't reflect uh, the needs of my constituents. But ultimately, right, our office nearly doubled the amount of investment in bond funding from 2017. And we secured more funding than any other city council district. But recognizing that um, there was a lot of debate and pushback at the time uh, in ensuring that my constituents received their fair share of basic needs for streets, sidewalks and drainage. Before we wrap things up, I want to talk a little bit about just the, the process of, of, of joining the city council. You, you, you joined the council as a, as a, at the age of 29, and it's a, 
uh, you know, major responsibility that comes with that with that position. And I, I always think that new council members, they're, they're kind of thrown into the deep end of the pool, particularly if they win by runoff, you know, as you did, where you, you know, you're elected in June and then the council takes July off and then you come back in August and you're dealing with the budget. And then you just basically have a few weeks to to, to kind of uh, absorb everything. And and I, I wondered uh, at what point you felt like you've, you you reach a point where, of comfort where you felt like, okay, I've got, I've kind of got a, a handle on what's going on here. Yeah. It, it's a combination of things, right? I had the advantage in that as a community organizer, I had already been door to door and uh, gauging community needs and seeing what their priorities were, where the deficiencies were, mm-hmm. uh, where they wanted to see improvement. And I also had been having conversations with city departments, right? Particularly around housing. Uh, and uh, I had relationships with uh, some of the, the mm-hmm. folks uh, within city staff because of that work. So um, there were pieces absolutely where it was learning on the job. Uh, and those first few months, right, are very consuming in that everyone wants to have a meet and greet with you, mm-hmm. uh, every nonprofit, every entity, every agency. Mm-hmm. And it's very important, right? Um, but at the same time, uh, we need to make sure that the nuts and bolts are taken care of um, to make sure that our constituents are taken care of. So absolutely, um, there were pieces that I had an advantage. There were pieces where it, where it was learning on the job. And then coupling that, not just with budget, but we also had conversations around ARPA and bond redistricting. Right. So for our first term, uh, yeah. for my first term, we uh, tackled so much that I'm really excited uh, for next year how how much more we're going to be able to mm-hmm. tackle, mm-hmm. Uh, not having to worry about redistricting or bond. Um, I, I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> Councilwoman Terry Garcia, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, good luck with your campaign. Thank you. And uh, that's all for this week. Uh, we're going to be back again next uh, next week. We hope everyone's doing well. And uh, until then, take care. Mm-hmm.